0: Well, as we continue in the book of Luke today, we are going to be diving into what it looks like to have a God who relentlessly has a heart and passion for us. In our new series, The Unimaginable God, who would have imagined a God who is not only all-powerful and yet also imminent, but also a God who weeps, who sobs, whose heart breaks for your heart and my heart? That's what we're going to discover today. And one of the things is we've looked at the book of Luke, I've tried to share that the book of Luke is really not a series of unrelated parables or unrelated teachings. They're connected. And so as I've done before, I want to show you how this particular passage is a hinge passage between what Jesus has been talking about, what he's going to talk about as we dive in today. We're looking again at Luke, we're in chapter 19. Now remember, Zacchaeus took some money several weeks ago, he found the kingdom and he repaid with restitution. And notice again here, we have this idea of money and restitution coming up. Then in Luke 19, we had a parable of setting up a far-off kingdom, but many didn't use their minas. Remember that? Sail your minas, Ryan talked about. And he made fun of my George Bush impersonation. He said it was terrible. He said it was Terrible. Man, I gave him a phone call, I'll tell you that. So the menias. Then we learned on Palm Sunday that Jesus tells his disciples to find some cult owners. And they give their stuff, their cult, to advance Jesus and his kingdom. And today Jesus is going to tell us that people don't recognize the kingdom when it's right in front of you. That's going to be a hinge to Jesus' teaching next week about cleansing the temple for misusing money. So there's this reoccurring theme here of what it looks like to advance the kingdom, to use our resources to advance the kingdom, and how we miss the kingdom. And if you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Palm Sunday, Jesus riding in on his donkey. People are singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the disciples get really, you know, celebrating what Jesus is doing. And the Pharisees come along being very crabby and they rebuke them. Ah, tell your disciples to be quiet. Shouldn't be saying that kind of thing. And Jesus begins to sob. The Greek word isn't just he weeps. He sobs. And he sobs for the Pharisees and disciples. The same reason he sobs for you and I. Jesus sobs when we don't see what's right in front of our eyes. And we're going to see the disciples missed some things, and the Pharisees missed some things simultaneously, and Jesus just sobs. Look what it says. He, Jesus, saw the city, he, he can see fine, and he wept over it. He, he sobbed over it, saying, if only you had known, if only you had seen, even you, especially in this your day, and this is a really key word here, your day, it's a very specific day going on here that we're going to come back to. It's not just any day they're missing it. Not just a Jesus is here day, which is pretty important, but a very specific calendar day. If you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from you. You're missing it. You're not seeing it. And Jesus is sobbing that they don't see what is right before their eyes. They're wearing blinders. You ever seen a blinders that a horse wears? People wear them all the time. They're just metaphorical. You ever met somebody like that? We brought in a guy we were going to hire one time, and he came up to speak and did a good job with the text, but really came across as a real egomaniac. So we're asking some questions about 15 years ago, and, and it was clear he had no idea. Do you man, notice how often you mention yourself? No, no, I don't mention it at all, no. Sometimes it comes across, maybe you're a little too harsh, maybe you're just too sensitive, huh? Maybe you're just too sensitive, maybe I'm too harsh. You ever met people like that? That they can't only see what they can see. And you, they can't hear any feedback that's not consistent with how they already see themselves. Maybe it's somebody who's going through an addiction and you're trying to bring feedback and consequences. No, no, there's a black cloud over my head. It's not my fault. Nothing to do with what I do. Maybe somebody's struggling with depression. You're trying to say, hey, I don't think this is necessarily healthy. I don't think you're heading in a good direction. No, 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 no. Just leave me alone. Everybody's mean to me. Blinders. actually study the brain. There's two parts of the brain. There's the emotional part of your brain and the rational part of your brain. In your first brain, your emotional part of your brain actually is what makes the decisions and it kind of looks to or bribes the rational part of your brain to find information that it wants. It's like when you want to buy a car, right? You're like, I really want that car. Is it a little over budget or the house a little over budget? But I want it. So your emotional part of your brain hires the rational part of your brain to go look for feedback that validates what you want. Oh, here's a piece over here. Yeah, you're saving money. You just saved $500 by spending $900. I saved, huh, really? Or, 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 or and then it filters out, well, I don't know if this is enough margin in your life. Well, get rid of that fact. We don't, real. And you know. And your emotional part of your brain blinds you to see the whole facts because it bribes the rational part of your brain to only bring filtered data back to you. That is certainly true in this passage today, where people are wearing blinders. And Jesus is just sobbing over how these blinders are going to affect them. See, we only see what we want to see. Look what happens. Now, remember, they've been singing, "'Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord! Peace in heaven and glory to the highest!' Now, some of the Pharisees called to him and said, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples!' But he answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So we're going to look at two groups here. we got the, the Pharisees and we got the disciples. And both of them don't see the whole picture. Remember, the disciples, looks like they see it. They're the ones singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the disciples only see the facts that they want to see. Because they're actually quoting from the Hallel in Psalms 118. And though they quote one part of the verse right, they miss the whole context. Because they knew what a Messiah would be. He'd be a conquering king like the Romans and the Greeks. And so they filter their understanding of the Old Testament through what they want, a king. Even the very verse they quote from Psalms 118... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Let's read back a few verses. Though they see this verse accurately, back in verse 22 it says, The stone which the builders rejected will become the chief cornerstone. That when the Messiah comes, he's going to be rejected and that will become the cornerstone God uses to build his movement. So though they could see, verse 22, Six, because it was consistent with their view of a conquering Messiah, they didn't see the very verse a few verses earlier. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes that he would use rejection to save the world. Then he says, This is the day the Lord has made. And that's true for any day. If you grew up singing that in church, this is the day, this is the day. But there's a specific day that the Messiah comes to, into Jerusalem and is rejected, that is a very special day the Lord has made. And we'll get to that in a moment. We will rejoice and be glad it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity, for blessed is the name of the Lord. What are some ways you're tempted to see or hear only what you want to hear? I've always loved Max Lucato books, and he was coming across, I came across a quote from him that described the kind of data we allow into our lives. Every time somebody says, oh, you're such a wonderful spiritual leader, there's a temptation to actually believe it. Because I'm not. I may have a little more experience than they do, but I'm certainly not as good as they say I am. But there's a temptation to believe that I am. No matter who you are, we need people in our lives who will see us who are not impressed with us, who do not have a livelihood dependent upon us in our success, and who are willing to remind us that we are no more important than anyone else and we cannot afford to be complacent about our capacity to sin. And you know, the more successful you are in any organization, the harder it is to get real, honest feedback. And it doubles the possibility of you having blinders. Because no one has the guts or doesn't have the kind of friendship or relationship to tell you where you might be broken or where you might be off base or where you might be really turning in a way that's not what God would want you to do. And the disciples, though they see one part of the verse well, they're blind to the most important part of the verse. Well, the same thing is true of the Pharisees. Theirs is even more so. Some of the Pharisees called him and said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees don't see the facts they don't want to see. Here's an interesting way to find out how open you are to feedback. You're going to feel or hear the self-righteous voice inside you where you start rebuking people. I can't believe this. Look how full they are. Why are they doing it that way? This is wrong, 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 wrong. And you know you're right. And you know they're wrong. You ever had that voice? I have it. I know you guys don't struggle with this kind of thing. But this voice of self-righteousness that you know better. I had one yesterday. So I was getting ready for the message. Pulled into Kroger to get some gas. Quinn's in the front seat. Left the car running because it was a little chilly. Went to put gas in and the gas attendant comes out. Hello, sir. Could you please turn your engine off? All right. Why? That's a danger. What an idiot. I saw the MythBuster episode where they actually proved that leaving your car on is in no way unsafe. Now, I didn't say that, but I felt that. Sure, I'll turn it off. But I, I, couldn't, I couldn't avoid the temptation to say, I, I wasn't aware of that law. She's like, well, it's written on the gas pump. Well, I've never seen it. I hadn't seen it. She's like, look down. I'm like, oh, turn off your engine. I thought it was just a suggestion from somebody who hadn't seen Mythbusters. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know what? I'm about to talk about being blind spot and self-righteous. And whenever you, you hear that self-righteous voice where you know what's right and everybody else is wrong, it's a good chance to really ask, am I open to the Holy Spirit blinding me? So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to Google it. Well, it turned out the uh, Mythbusters episode was about cell phones. And cell phones don't actually blow up the gas station. Uh, static electricity is the one that causes the most fires. And there is a fact that leaving your engine on can contribute in small ways to the possibility of fire, and I went, Oh, no. (laughs) I'm wrong. No. But man, I felt right. Whenever you feel the voice of rebuking someone, you need to really ask yourself, are you open to feedback or do you have blinders on? Because they know they're right. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you this, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Which is kind of a neat metaphor, right? And this is hyperbole. Jesus is saying, even the rocks are going to say this thing. And that's true, but Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Whenever he quotes something, it's from the Bible. And there's a reason he said this particular phrase to this particular people on this particular day. It's like quoting a movie. If I said to you, Luke, I am your father. You immediately picture that scene from Empire Strikes Back if you're a nerd like I am. If I said to you, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a darn, you would immediately picture that scene from that movie. And so the whole context of that scene would come and bear to you. When Jesus quotes this phrase from Habakkuk, it immediately came with a context the Pharisees knew, and it's got a stinging rebuke. Let's go to that passage. What's Jesus really saying to them by saying the stones will cry out? Well, in Habakkuk, verse two, chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the stone will cry out. But what's the immediate context the Pharisees would have known? Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. The leaders are corrupt all about themselves, all about money and power, not about the things of God. Next verse. You give shameful counsel, you leaders, to your house. You cut off people not leading them in the right direction. You sin against your own soul, for the stones will cry out. Oh. Jesus was saying to those Pharisees. Nowhere, in any of your incoherent rambling, is there anything close to an intelligent thought? We're all the dumber for having heard you. Another obscure reference to a movie, if you know it. By saying the stones cry out, he's bringing all the context of Habakkuk to rebuke them, which is why this is a hinge chapter that sets up the cleaning out of the temple money changers coming up next week. He's rebuking them for being blind, and they're blind because of their covetousness. They're blind because of their power hungriness. They don't really want to hear the things of God. So how about you? Do you filter? Are you wearing blinders? See, the only smart thing to do, the only wise thing to do would be to assume you are. Right? Assuming you don't it's not going to get you anywhere. You have to assume you are wearing blinders so you have the chance of taking them off. Here's three blinders that the cognitive dissonance and psychology talks about. One is filtering. I mentioned that already. That you filter out feedback, that you only see what your spouse is doing wrong and you begin to ruminate on that and you filter out what they're doing right because you're really irritated at them. You're, you're in a, a debate with a business partner or maybe a spouse or a child and you begin to filter out all the ways that they might be right because this is another example of a 17-year-old telling you what to do. You don't even get the possibility that maybe you should listen better, be quick to listen and slow to speak. You're not even open to the possibility you might be wrong because you filtered it. Is it finger-pointing? Do you have that voice of rebuke in you that begins to finger-point and say, well, well, I wouldn't be so this if you weren't that, and I wouldn't have done this if you didn't do that. And that defensiveness and that deflection keeps you from hearing a truth that the Holy Spirit might want to use to grow you, to convict you, to shape you. Or fact-fudging. You, you do some fact-fudging? You start looking for facts and it kind of fit if I leave this part off or if I move this part around, right? What? What would it look like if every time you felt yourself being defensive or feeling self righteous, you said, Holy Spirit, right now I need you to speak into me. I need you to open my eyes to see what it is I'm I'm not open to seeing. Speak to me, Holy Spirit. Help me, Holy Spirit. I don't want to be blind. Or you can listen real carefully and you can hear Jesus weeping for you. I died for you. You don't need to be defensive. You're fully restored in my righteousness. And in my righteousness, you're acceptable so you can hear feedback because whatever you find, I've already forgiven you for. So in my grace, accept the criticism. Analyze the criticism because it's not your identity. Who you are in Christ is your identity. This is just just something you do that I want to help grow you in. And grace can help you with that. So that's the disciples, and that's the Pharisees. As we keep moving on, we're going to notice that we only see the things that reinforce what we want to see. In verse 42, Jesus turns to them and says, If you had known now what you're going to know later. Especially in there, it is again, this day, this specific day. There's something going on. On this day, the things that make for peace. See, the reason they didn't realize that Jesus on a cult coming on this day as a humble Messiah, they didn't think that's the kind of thing God uses to make peace. No, no, peace comes from a champion, from a warrior, from a Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman kind of empire. Not through rejection. Not through a donkey. Not through crucifixion. And that's why Jesus has been saying all along, I'm going to die, 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 I'm going to die and raise myself in three days. Like, what is he talking about? What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Filter, filter, filter. You're going to be the king of the world and we're going to be on your team and we're going to be the second, third and fourth hand man to the guy who's in charge of the whole world. Right? And that's why Jesus turned to them and said, read my lips. I'm going to die on a cross. See, that really wasn't that bad, really. Tell Ryan, by the way. Tell Ryan. But they didn't hear it. Because the things they heard and the things they saw did not reinforce what they thought made for peace. And that's why they missed it. Now, have you ever had a moment where if you could go back to a particular day, based on what you know now, you would change things? Because you wouldn't have filtered it? I got hundreds of them. I remember one day in track. It was a junior or senior and I had a planter's wart. I don't know if you've ever had a planter's wart. It's really annoying. I never had one before. It's like having a, a rock that somebody you know, glues to the the meat of your foot. And so I was a triple jumper, a long jumper, 110 high hurdler, and, and a 300 intermediate hurdler. And so as you're running, it's like you're always running with a rock in your, in your shoe. Well, I was pretty important to the team. I typically got you know, at least three firsts and a second somewhere in those... so we needed the points I was going to bring to bear so I went to the doctor and I'm like hey what's going on with the 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 planter's work he's like oh it's easy I like easy it'll be quick oh I like quick if you come in on Thursday we just take a little liquid nitrogen and we just pop that thing off awesome and I didn't ask any more questions because easy sounds good flicking it off sounds good Thursday sounds fine. So I show up at two o'clock on Thursday. Time to get rid of the planter's ward. This is so great. And sure enough, the doctor comes out with a liquid nitrogen, you know, smoke all over the place. Ready? Right? My foot's got smoke coming off it. Whoa. And then the doctor reaches into the drawer and pulls out an apple core. An apple core. And he pushes it into my foot. And something about three quarters of an inch comes out of my foot. I look at the bottom of my foot, that thing had like the stem going into it. I have a hole in my foot, like a half inch deep. I'm like, holy cow! I have a track meet in two hours. If I had known then what I know now, I would have waited till tomorrow. I filled that hole in my foot with Neosporin. I filled like a hole in my foot. I filled it. And then track shoes are really, really tight. I got a piece of industrial foam from the army surplus store my dad had. It was like four inches thick, six inches wide, and a foot long, I shoved that whole thing into my shoe. Stuck my foot in there. Oh, Oh! 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 And I ran that track meet. I think I got like four seconds. I did pretty well, considering there's a hole in my foot. I thought, if only I could have gone back. I would ask more questions. What do you mean by easy? How long until I walk again on that thing, right? So, that's what happens. We only hear the things that reinforce what we want to hear. Now, why is this day so important? I told you this day is important. I want to share some research for you. And this research about the day specifically comes from uh, Sir Robert Anderson. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince or The Coming King. He worked for Scotland Yard. He was knighted in England for his work on this particular work. Now, there's a little bit of uh, difference of opinion as to which date he starts with and ends with. But it's pretty much in the ballpark of what I'm about to share. So I'm going to share the conclusions he came to in the 1800s doing the math based on a prophecy from the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Let me give you the prophecy first. In Daniel, chapter 9, verse 25, Daniel says, Know therefore and understand. Let's do some thinking here, people. That from, we got a timeline now, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem... There's our first starting point for a timeline. So, Daniel's prophesying during the Babylonian exile. Seventy years they've been in exile by Babylon. He says, someday we're going to get out of this mess. And there's going to be another kingdom. He predicts that in another vision about Persia. And the Persian king is going to send us back home. And the day that occurs, I want you to start your clocks. Start counting the days. Because from the day going forth from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, the prince, I'm going to give you the exact number of days. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. If you read the context of Daniel, every time he talks about weeks, it's a set of seven. So there will be seven sets of seven and 62 sets of seven. So let's do the math here, we've got 62 plus 7 is 69, and now we're going to take that, take the next page here, I'll give you the the timeline. So, on the timeline, we have somewhere around 445 BC, based on what the Old Testament tells us and correlating their calendars to our calendar, we actually have the edict from Xerxes to Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. And, of course, we have Jesus, you know, here being born around 4 B.C., based on the calendar discrepancies, and him dying sometime between 32 and 33. And we're going to pinpoint that in just a second. All right, let's finish the math. So 69 times 7 weeks. Remember, this, that's a 7. But then the lunar calendar the Jews used was a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So they have 360 days a year based on the lunar calendar. So... If we do that math, we get 69 times 7, 7 times 360, and we end up with 173,880 days, according to Robert Anderson of Scotland Yard. So he began to take that, work all the different calendars together, the Persian calendar, the Jewish calendar, our current calendar, to figure out what would be 173,880 days later. And guess what day he came to. It culminates on Palm Sunday, Of April 32 AD. The date he concluded was Jesus' triumphal entry. So Nahal says, this is the day that the Lord has made. And Jesus says, you're missing out on the day of my visitation. It wasn't just sort of a generic day. It was a literal countdown day. Now those that use the date a little bit differently. Actually have this sync up to his crucifixion. Not his triumphal entry. I have a tendency to believe and lean towards Sir Anderson's work, putting it on Palm Sunday, just like Daniel predicted. So whenever people say to you, like, how do we know Jesus isn't just one of many ways to God? Well, there's thousands of proofs. But here's one you may not have heard of before. You can literally count the days from the start timeline to the end. And, of course, Jesus was the bread of life. And Jesus wanted it to be easy to find the bread of life. So where did he have him born? In a bakery. Bethlehem. Beth, house of, lehem, bread. The bread came to a bakery. And he wanted you to find the living water. So he put living water in a manger, which was a water faucet. That was a place made of stone that animals would find water. God wanted it very easy to know who the Messiah would be and a thousand other. All right, so here's, here's what's going on. So this is why Jesus says here at the end of this passage... For days will come upon you, your enemies are going to build an embankment around you. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, which is what happens in 70 AD. They're going to surround you and close you in on every side. That's why I'm weeping. Oh my goodness, the consequences of missing this are huge. They're going to level you. Not just you, your children within you. To the ground. And they will not leave one stone upon another. Which was a laughable idea that the giant walls that Herod built would be knocked over but the Romans do exactly that as Jesus predicted 30 years earlier because and here it comes you did not know the time of your visitation you did not see you did not recognize that God was here in your midst so if the Pharisees and the disciples can't see the facts, when they're literally God himself is in front of them. What's the chance you and I are going to be blind to something we need to hear? High, right? I don't want Jesus sobbing over my inability to see what's in front of me. So the only wise thing we can do, if we believe that, if we think that's true, if Jesus is sobbing when we don't see what's in front of our eyes, then we have got to be wise. We've got to try to see this week what you don't want to see. Try to see what you don't want to see. When you hear that voice of self-righteousness, say, okay, how might I be wrong? When you're in a conflict and you're building a case for the next thing you're going to say and you're sort of filtering out all the nonsense of the person you're talking to, pause for a second. Holy Spirit, I want to listen better. God, I want to try and see ways in which I'm lying to myself. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. It's not going to hurt anybody. Maybe I'm hurting somebody. And maybe that's a lie that's leading me down a path to destruction. What lies do I believe about God? What lies do I believe about life? Life should be easy. Life should be easy. Life should be easy. What did you say, Jesus? In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I like the second part. Take heart, I've overcome the world. But maybe life isn't supposed to be like Disneyland. It's supposed to be like a war zone. Because Jesus promised me I'd have tribulation. Oh, help me to look at the lens of life to what you tell me life is like. Because it's so easy to miss what's right in front of you. I remember this year we're preparing for Christmas. So I went downstairs to uh, get the Christmas tree. And I'm the one that packed it up the year before. So I go downstairs and I remember, we always keep all of our Christmas stuff in tubs. So I go downstairs, I come in the, the, the shop door, and there's the tubs. No tree, no tree, no tree, no tree. And we have this so shelf system, we have the paint, and then more tubs. No tree, no tree, no tree. I lost the Christmas tree. My wife's going to kill me. What did I do with the Christmas tree? I have a tendency to throw stuff away. There's no way I threw away the Christmas tree. Well, we said we were going to get a new Christmas tree. Was that two years ago or last year? Maybe I threw it away thinking we were going to get one. We didn't get... No, no, we definitely what so I run back upstairs I check the closet not in here check this closet not in here what could I have done with the Christmas tree I come back down check the tub 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 no check tub 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 no huh. go back upstairs check this I have no idea and I know this is going to happen my wife's going to come home and she's going to find this thing in like three seconds it's going to drive me crazy I'm like I'm going to check that's not going to happen this time check closet closet places I would never put a Christmas tree can nowhere in the whole house Beth comes home, I'm like, honey, I may have thrown the Christmas tree wet. I don't think I did, but I can't find it. It's like, well, did you check down in the basement? I checked down the basement. She comes down the basement, opens the door. Not in any of the tubs. It's in a box right there on the paint shelf. Right there! I leaned on it. I looked at it. But because I was looking for a tub the whole time, I didn't even think about the tree with The white box with the Christmas tree evergreens coming out of it. That would have been a good place for it. If we are so blind to material things, how much more are we blind to spiritual things? Let's pray. Father, we can be so blind to the truths that we need to hear. So we just invite your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, to admonish us and to convict us when we've given control over to anxiety or worry or fear. When we get defensive or self-righteous, we invite your spirit to speak to us this week, to draw near to us this week, to grow us this week, that we can see the things that you want us to see to become and conformed in the image of your son. And We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. See you next week.